Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 7, Bagman and Crouch. Harry disentangled himself from Ron and got to his feet. They had arrived on what appeared to be a deserted stretch of misty moor. In front of them was a pair of tired and grumpy-looking wizards, one of whom was holding a large gold watch, the other a thick roll of parchment and a quill. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our only announcement today before we jump in is that our summer camp is still on sale and we are so excited. It is coming together beautifully. And don't worry, everybody. Rory has looked at her calendar and she is able to attend camp. Great. I can't wait to see Rory. Yeah. And all of our lovely (laughs) listeners will be joining us for camp. Also, everybody, today's Every Flavored Bean conversation is going to be Matt and I speculating at what our magical wizarding tent would look like because some of the wizards in this chapter make choices that are very different than I would make with my magical tent. I would not feel the need to travel with a sundial. I have a very hot, hot take about this question and our Patreon listeners are going to get to hear it. Oh, I'm so excited. If you want to hear that, you can go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter sacred text. So Matt, our theme this week is service. What story do you have for us? So I got really involved in like alternative spring break service learning trips when I was a undergrad. The spring of my first year, I went on a trip. I went to college in Indiana and we went to Appalachia to uh, a home for foster children in, in Kentucky, which was also an animal farm. 
It was right up my alley for the kind of things that I like to do. There would be little children there who were in between care, and it was run by a couple of Roman Catholic sisters, and they just had a bunch of farm animals there and, you know, domestic pets like dogs and cats, but also goats and chickens and and llamas and so forth, just to provide comfort to to children who were in difficult situations. And it was really beautiful. You know, the, the nuns would talk about how there were certain children who could talk to no human but could sit next to a goat and, like, share all their troubles with that that animal. And it was this beautiful healing space. And so I heard about this place. And there was a, a trip going down to help the sisters with some of the work on the farm. And so I went for, for spring break. And when we got there, me and this team of undergrads from Notre Dame got there. The sisters greeted us out front, and they were both sweet, kind of world-changing, ambitious, <laughs> and good people. And they said, you know— we have lots of work to do. We have no children here this week because it just happens that all our children are, are in placement right now. But there's lots of painting to do and lots of like farm work around the farm to do, animal care to do. We spent most of the week painting, painting a, a barn, which was fine. And we got to know the sisters very well and heard stories about some of the things they'd, they'd done and gone through. And we went to the original Kentucky Fried Chicken, which was interesting for Ooh. me, right? Because it was, it was not very far from there. But there, I did have this feeling of disappointment, right? Because I wanted to serve. Like, I wanted to see some children and get to know them and maybe also provide some comfort for them or or play with them or just, right? And almost as soon as I felt disappointment, I also felt guilt for that disappointment, <laughs> right? Because what it really meant is during that week, there were no children that needed this emergency care, right? Mm -hmm. And it was actually a really useful trip for me. And I think part of the reason why I kept being involved in these kinds of trips is it it immediately made me start to analyze and recognize and think through what I wanted from the trip, like how the trip was serving me. Like, why should I show up disappointed? If I'm disappointed, it's because something I expected to receive from this experience was not going to be there. And that meant I had to do a little bit deeper reflection. And I also had to do some reflection upon like what I was doing there that week. Like, what is the value of this work? Why am I doing this work? Right. And those were useful reflections for me. We're not ready to go to Etymology Corner yet, Vanessa, but I think when we do visit Etymology Corner, I'll let you know that like one of the senses of the word service in this medieval usage is just to pay pay homage to something, to dignify it, right? Mm. And I, that's a definition I really like, right? Because when we think about like why we do service, what our service does, what it accomplishes, it seems to me like a good definition would just be that I'm trying to dignify something. I'm trying to like... Mm -hmm recognize the worth and the value of something through my action and through my presence. And so that's what I was thinking about when I was reading this chapter. And that's what I was thinking about when this this story from my college days resurfaced in my memory. Oh, Matt, I love that story so much. And I, I love the distinction you made about how you were there to serve, but also you realized that you were actually there to get something too. And there, I think that there are absolutely moments where that is Wonderful that like, why should you do something that's entirely self-sacrificial? There's nothing yeah. wrong with wanting to spend time with children. Right. <laughs> like that is not an evil desire you had. Right, right. And yet it's not what was needed. And, you know, that is something that I know that people who work in emergency relief or, you know, a friend of mine runs the Portland Habitat for Humanity. And he's like, we have more volunteers who want to build then we have mm -hmm. people who are willing to donate money. So like we don't have enough money for all the volunteers. Right. And his suspicion is that some of the people who want to volunteer could also afford to donate, but that that's just not as satisfying yeah. as saying, look, I physically built this house. And, you know, yeah. I always think about 
all of the really well-intended people who sent teddy bears to Haiti in the wake of the earthquake, right? It's like, thank you. Also, please send water, right? Like, (laughs) and so the question is like, yeah, when is service actually a service? Yeah. And when does it become self-sacrifice in a detrimental way? Yeah. And then when does it, when is it actually self-service? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I like this idea of dignifying the other through one's actions, right? Yeah. Because I think it also explains why we do have an instinct. Like, if you actually go someplace and show up and use your body and use your actions and are present with the person you're serving, that feels like you're dignifying them or paying respect to them more than if we sign a check and send it in. Right. But that's just but that's just a feeling. Like we have to have to think about like what actually does dignify the person more? How can my actions dignify the person more as we as we consider right. what actions to take? Right. Does this person need a podcaster or money for a doctor? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm really excited to talk about service with you and to talk about this chapter with you. And I know you're really excited to do a 30 second recap. So I am. Would you like me to count you in? Yes, please. Okay. Three, two, one, go. They arrive at the Quidditch World Cup campsite and there is a muggle who has to check them in. And he's just like not, you know, an unobservant fellow. And so he's like something really weird is going on. So they have to keep obliviating him. And then they go and they set up their camp. And Hermione, Ron and Harry walk through the campsite. And it occurs to Harry for the first time that not all people are British. And it blows his mind. And then they meet Bagman and Crouch at the at the tent. And these are two very different men with different priorities. I didn't even mention Weatherby. I'm sure I'll cover it, Vanessa. Great job. I'll fill in all the details. I'm sure. I'm very confident I'll fill in all the details that you missed. I'm confident in you. Really? Okay. On your mark. Yes. On your mark. Get set. Go. So they arrive and they get up and their wizard's checking them in and then they go to their tent location. When they get to the tent location, there's a guy named Roberts who is is being traumatized because the world does not make sense. And every time it doesn't make sense, someone comes in and erases his memory, which is horrifying. And then they, the children go out to get water and they bring back water and they try to build a fire, which takes a long time. And then Bagman shows up and Bagman has a character and then Crouch shows up. And then, oh, and also the rest of the family showed up before they showed up. And then uh, and then they notice there's lots of there's shamrocks and the Irish and, and a, a poster of crumb. The end. <laughs> I just started listing details at the end. I just started listing That's details. great. Okay, good. Vanessa, where do you see service in this chapter? I think that there's some really obvious places of service in this chapter that we could start with, which are that Harry is helping Arthur sort of translate into the muggle world. We saw mm-hmm. a little bit of this in the last chapter where Arthur is like, hey, do I look like a muggle? And Harry's like, top notch, Mr. Weasley. And then it's again in this chapter where Arthur is like, hey, can you help me (laughs) figure out muggle money? Can you help me figure out how to set up a tent? And what is so interesting about this is that some of this are things that Harry can do, right? He can help figure out how to do pounds instead of galleons. But some of it is not actually information that you just have as a muggle. And so there's some assumptions happening. So Arthur asks, like, hey, Harry, can you help me figure out how to set up this tent? You obviously know how to do every muggle activity. And Harry has never set up a tent in his life. Yeah. He's like, sure, I can I can read directions. 
And this is something that I I really see myself as Arthur in that like I often ask for help when I don't need it because I'm assuming someone else is an expert. I've done this to you. I'll ask you a question and you will essentially be like, let me Google that with you. Right. You're like, I am an expert in Christianity, not all things religion. You could just Google that. Or my favorite story about this is I had my dad had a close family friend who, when he retired, we found out that he had been a spy his whole career. And so all of his friends started asking him spy favors. And one of his friends was like, can you help me find this person? I don't know. I would love to get back in touch. And he called back a minute later and was like, here's all of their information. And the guy was like, oh, my God, how did you find it? And he was like, the white pages. <laughs> and so I think that sometimes we think someone is an expert, right, just because of their identity. And that's not that's not how identity works. You don't actually know every single thing about religion. Harry does not know how to do every muggle thing. And sometimes the white pages is sufficient. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think you're you're pushing it to exactly where I wanted to go, which is like this this kind of everyday kind of confusion, not even confusion, like the everyday assumption that is actually part of good and friendly and positive relationships gets more complicated when it happens between cultures and between strangers, right? So, like, we can see one of the things that's going on is, like, all these wizards are trying to, like, sort of play act or imitate muggles who they do not understand. There's a real kind of cultural divide, right? And as you said, Arthur is also assuming that anyone who has had any encounter with muggle culture must know all of muggle culture, Right. But muggle culture, like any culture, is complicated and has its own diversity within it, right? And I'm sure our listeners, especially listeners who might be from underrepresented communities, will often see maybe good-intentioned others, you know, assuming knowledge of them or assuming expertise of them in a way that can feel like very alienating and hurtful and and estranging, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that's not the case of what's going on with, with you and your friends or you and me or Arthur and Harry here. But like this kind of indifference to the experience of of muggles is absolutely going on with Roberts, who is who is the muggle who I guess is renting out campsites. Just, yeah, she's just a guy who's renting out campsites, right? And he's becoming like bothered and confused because people who do not look familiar are arriving at his campsite, and you know we can analyze his being unsettled by the different, right? Which is its own issue and maybe something to consider. But that every time he starts asking questions, he gets obliviated, like. That sounds terrible. <laughs> like, it sounds it's really horrible. awful. But the wizards are just like, oh, yeah, ooh, we got to do it again. This guy's asking lots of questions. He's This is really getting, yeah. It's. I mean, it's a hassle. It's an inconvenience for these these wizard bureaucrats. But it just kind of shows the, the gap between the two cultures and how easily you can sort of reduce the other to a problem to be solved rather than to a person experiencing the world. Right. And he is actually providing a service. Yeah. I also see this as like the way that sometimes we treat service employees. Yeah. We as a culture, not we as you and me, Matt. Yep. Where like for whatever reason, even though they are there to help, we start treating them as if they were an inconvenience because they don't do exactly what we want, yeah. exactly how we want it. And without Roberts, they wouldn't for whatever reason, I don't know if he works for the state, you know, the National Park Service, yeah. or if he like owns this land and is renting it. But obviously they need him. He is providing a key service yeah. for this event. And he's not like being a good little soldier and not asking any questions and looking the other way when a 
an obviously British person comes to him with non-British currency, which like isn't actually being culturally insensitive. That is like legitimately confusing. If somebody who had a, like a Boston American accent showed up at one of our live shows with unfamiliar dollars, I'd be like, what are these? Right? Like yeah. from a like genuine place of curiosity and also skepticism. Like I need the money for the service. Yeah. <laughs> Right. right. Like, I, I don't think that this is an unfair concern. Yeah. And yet he's he's not making the service as like easy as possible. And so there's yeah. just this like complete instrumentalization of someone when you believe that their whole identity is providing a service for you yeah. rather than seeing them as a person. They just keep obliviating him. There should be a system in place. So that they don't have to be obliviating someone 10 times a day. Yeah. Yeah. Like exchange your money before you arrive. Right. There should <laughs> like, be. Or yeah. give everyone a handy guide to muggle money. Right. right. Like it's not. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think this is, a, this is the right time for us to board the train to Etymology Corner. Oh, thank God. The trolley, I guess. The word service comes from the, a medieval, I think medieval French word for slave. Oh, wow. It's, it's for one who's, whose whole existence is instrumentalized and dedicated to meeting the needs of some other. And that's why I didn't want to turn to it during my story, not the definition I wanted to go to. It later on acquired a sense of dignifying and paying homage because often the service was doing service at table, like waiting tables for right. lords and whoever, right? Lords and ladies. And so that language was also used at medieval Christian rituals around the table, around the, the meal, the sacred meal, right? And so it began to be associated with just paying homage to something, dignifying something by your presence, by your actions, and started to move away from that sense of slave. So so I would like to kind of leave behind the sense of slavery, although recognizing that it is part of it. Instrumentalizing people is part of what's at root in the concept of service. And that's something that, you know, that this chapter shows us while lifting up the other part, which is, okay, how can my actions honor something which is worthy of dignity and honor? Yeah. Like a good example of this kind of service or like this kind of patience is, you know, when Hermione helps Arthur with with the matches, right? They don't want to be noticed by the muggles, and so they're lighting fires the muggle way and almost drawing more attention to themselves by being bad at starting fires than they would be if they just kind of use their wands to start some fires, right? And Hermione shows a great deal of understanding of Arthur's ignorance and patience with him and just kind of shows him, like, here, here's how you do it. Let's do it easily and quickly and 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 takes care of it. And what's really interesting to me about the way that Hermione helps Arthur is it seems like the text is making a little bit of fun of Arthur for not being able to use the matches, but Hermione is not. She understands that he's never seen matches before, so she's really understanding and patient with him and just shows how to easily use them, right? But I think the text wants to make a little bit of fun of Arthur for not understanding and being unfamiliar with the, the muggle world. And that, like, the, when we're thinking about our actions as dignifying the other, patience and understanding— is one way, and it also links back to the thing you were saying about service workers, like when we are being served by service workers, like we also can show patience and understanding and dignify the other's work through that patience and understanding. Yeah, it's an interesting element of active consent and offering, right? And yeah. where does the offering start? 
right? Hermione totally offers, right? She's like, right. here, let me help you with the matches. It will right. actually give me great pleasure to offer the matches to you, right? And you also is similar when you went to Kentucky. Like you had to sign up. You actually had to put a ton of effort into offering this service. Yeah. So consent, right, is like super like super active, the consent in this situation. Whereas, you know, I worked as a waitress for four years and the the question of consent is interesting, right? Like it was a kind of job that I could get at the time. And yes, I consented to this job and actually most of the restaurants I worked at, I had a really positive experience with overall. Mm -hmm. But when you think about people who, you know, Service employees in the in many states in the United States get paid under minimum wage, right? And yeah. often if you are signing up to work a job that at its nature does not have a living wage, the question of consent becomes really interesting. Are you doing that because you actively want to do it or because society is set up in a way that this is your best of the bad options? Yeah. And tips-based economy, right? Like you often get yourself into situations in which you will make more money the worst treatment you allow to happen to you. Right. And so, it, you know, men would be like lightly and like, again, nothing traumatic ever happened to me without recourse. I was grabbed by one person, but my boss kicked him out and it was amazing. But you let people like say inappropriate things to you and you're just like, and you laugh it off and you know, so like service can become yeah. non-consensual in this way very quickly or the consent yeah. becomes really ambiguous. And even the fact, you know, I was reading this chapter with Ariana yesterday and she was getting really frustrated with Arthur. She was like, why isn't he asking Hermione for help? <laughs> right. Like, why is she asking Harry? Hermione's actually had a more like prototypical muggle upbringing yeah. than Harry. And we yeah. discussed, you know, this is maybe the first time he's really spending time with Hermione. And so a lack of comfort. Yep. And actually, there's something nice about like not asking a woman to do domestic help. Right. Like. There could be all sorts yeah. of really good intentions as to why Arthur isn't asking Hermione for her service and is asking Harry. But these things just become, they do become complicated really quickly. Yeah. But we should be asking people for what we need from them, right? And actually, it feels really good when people are like, hey, you're an expert on this. Can you help me? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I I mentioned before, like, there's a difference between, like, friends being of service to one another and service employees, like service workers, right? Right, Like one hopes there is at least a mutual affection, if not a mutual respect between Arthur and Hermione, so that, that there's a better chance of a, of a dignifying exchange there. But like, you know, with, with Roberts, there's less of a chance than that. The, the other thing that is really present in this chapter is like we're starting to see emerge like the deep layers of wizard, wizard bureaucracy, like mm -hmm. how layered and how complicated the bureaucracy of the Ministry of Magic is. And that had me thinking about, like, civil service, right? Like, mm -hmm. government service and civil service, and how the Ministry of Magic is not portrayed in a positive light here, right? There's, there's lots of folks who are objectifying others or for whom their job is neither dignifying for themselves nor for the people they serve, and they're just kind of going through the motions and trying to, you know, they have paperwork and tasks to be accomplished, and that's the main content of their jobs. And we can also see how, like, that leads to the indifference around a missing colleague that we mentioned last chapter, right? Like, everyone's still kind of joking and not paying attention to the fact that Bertha Jorkins is gone. And it has to do with the what one senses is a sort of depersonalizing atmosphere of bureaucracy. I mean, that's why Percy gets called Weatherby, 
right? Like this, people right. don't actually know each other. They are instrumentalizing each other. They they think of their roles as in service to the wizarding population and to the magical world, but they're so deep in the bureaucracy, what they actually have in front of them are tasks and objects rather than people and service. I'm curious what you think about Obviously, this can go too far and you can call, you know, the kid who works for you, Weatherby, when his name is Weasley. But there are some times where I really cherish that professionalism where, like, certainly if I was, like, bleeding on the floor, I wouldn't want you to ignore that and be like, yes, but can you deliver the thing you said? But, you know, when I lived in the dorms, I was, like, part of a mail room. I had to go somewhere to pick up my mail. And I really did love these individual male workers and became friends with them over time. But they would ask me questions that I was like, no, no, we need to have a professional relationship. And like, just they would ask me questions about my mail. And I was like, this is deeply personal. (laughs) Like, it's none of your business what is in this package, you know, and part of me felt like bad about that, that like it is natural to have curiosity. They are at work and they are like curious about the things that they're handling all day. And so while I wanted to not only like acknowledge their humanity, like I became friends with them over time and they did know certain things about me. There are also moments where I was like, no, no, professional boundary. It's none of your business what's in this package. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I wonder if there's actually something really nice about Crouch calling Percy Weatherby and whether Percy is like, do you know I'm going to let him call me Weatherby because then he doesn't know I'm a Weasley. Not that he is necessarily ashamed of that, but he doesn't want to be trading in on his dad's name. And so like sometimes it's nice when there's a little bit of that professional barrier and yeah. And it sucks because you're called Weatherby or it sucks because I'm putting up a boundary between people who I otherwise really like, but also there are benefits to it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that, you know, not to lean into my own definition too much, but I think that like something like a category of dignity can help us think through when it's right to be professional and or how to think about professionalism, right? Like, how do I best dignify the person in front of me? Like sometimes it's being super professional with them, right? Not crossing a boundary that you have not been invited to cross, not assuming knowledge of someone that you don't have or intimacy with someone that you haven't earned, like, and just treating them respectfully given the the exchange. But I think the thing we were saying, you know, before and that continues here is that it goes both ways, that the you also, the person who's helping you or serving you, one should respond with the same sort of professionalism. Right. I, the other thing is just like talking about like knowing names. When they're by the fire and just by happenstance, the Weasley's campsite is right by like a, a major path in the campground and lots of people are passing their campground while they're sitting by the fire. And there's this paragraph in the chapter where Arthur is sort of muttering to them, oh, here's this person, here's that person. They had that department. Oh, this person's unspeakable. We don't even know what they do. And it's a little bit gossipy, and I don't think in an injurious way. I think that he's he's not saying anything bad about these folks. He's just kind of naming them off of the children. But you can see, like, how big the the department is, how big the ministry is. You can see that people are paying attention to one another professionally in the sense of, like, sort of instrumentally, right? Like this person heads that department, not like, oh, they have three kids that are about your age or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. they, you can see that th- th- he's very much in the professional world and thinking about this as an organization where the people are pieces and cogs in it. And that's what's interesting about them. And as you were saying, if an organization is going to function properly, you have to know that stuff, right? But there is something about it like butting up against the 
the dignifying thing, right? When you reduce, reduce a person to their role or to the, their position within an organization, you also have to ignore some other things about them, which might be worth worthy of, of attending to. I, and the other thing is, and I guess this is my point, is that it makes me feel safer. Like, it actually makes me feel yeah. safer when someone is super professional in certain situations yeah. Yeah. for any number of reasons. And again, I, I think that Crouch is taking this far too far by not even knowing Percy's name. But I do wonder if sometimes that distance can create a healthy boundary. Yeah. How I imagine the situation is that Crouch made the mistake once and Percy made the conscious choice to not correct him. And maybe it was out of a sense of cowardice that he was like, oh, I don't want to correct him and like being overly deferential. But I can just really also imagine Percy being like, as soon as you find out I'm a Weasley, you are going to feel like you know so much about me. You are going to know that there are a million of us and that we're poor and that my dad and loves muggles. And you're just going to have all this information to make all of these assumptions about me. And let me prove myself to you by my service. And then we see the downsides of that because you do get the feeling that Percy doesn't feel entitled to a level of dignity unless he earns it through service, right? He bows so low that his glasses fall off. And I don't think that Crouch feels the need to be bowed to. (laughs) And he's immediately like, can I make you a cup of tea, right? And that is also something that I, I resonate with where, you know, there are certain situations where you're like, if I don't make myself useful here, I don't quite feel like I deserve it. And like, that's not true either. Like, you don't always have to be useful in order to have dignity. Yeah. I mean, it it also starts to frame his actions later in the series differently, right? Like, because so much of his identity does come from the service he provides the ministry, it makes it a lot harder for him to be loyal to his family later. Yeah. And a lot easier for him to be loyal to a ministry, which is rapidly becoming overrun by, by folks he should not be giving dignity to, right? Right. I think one thing that we're really kind of exploring is just like how every one of these interactions is complicated and can be interpreted differently by people on different sides of it. And kind of returning to our earlier part of the conversation about expectations between cultures or between peoples who don't really know one another, right? Like how one communicates dignity, how one feels dignified is different for each person. And so it just, it requires patience and understanding, I guess. Again, I think, but we can see clear situations where obviously it's gone wrong, right? Like the indifference to personal lives and the exclusive concern with a person's kind of professional merit or skill is one of the reasons why the only thing they're saying about Bertha Jorkins is that she's bad at directions. Right. Not that she's missing, right? Right. Like, Like they don't know anything about her home life, anything about why she might be gone, anything about like what might have happened to her. All I know is like, you know, we can't really trust her with directions in her job. And that's one of the reasons why that she's allowed to go missing and that allowing her to go missing for that long leads to risks and dangers that they don't realize or won't realize for another couple chapters. Right. They essentially, I was wondering that too, if like for whatever reason, Bertha Jorkins's job was more specialized and necessary. If she was the only person who could translate gobbledygook to English right. and they needed right. that, there would be a search mission out for her. That's but right. because the service right. she provides is generic enough and all they know about her is her service, they're like, yeah. she's fine. Who cares? Right. If she was campsite supervisor for the Quidditch World Cup, they would right. know she was, they would care that she was missing. 
right? Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. shouldn't be that that's the, the reason why yeah. we care someone is missing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Vanessa, I have a question for you. Yes. With respect to the theme of service, etc., should Harry buy omnioculars for Hermione and Ron? Like, is that yes. a, is that a service? Yes. Say why. Here's the thing. It's so interesting, and I think that the scene is actually so well written. So. Harry can afford it, and Ron can't, and maybe Hermione can or can't, but this isn't how she was going to spend her money. And so Hermione, because she is, right, like, class-coded, is upper-middle class. Both of her parents are dentists. She accepts this as, like, a nice present, but it's not humiliating to her. But it is humiliating to Ron because he's poor and grew up poor. I just think that those of us with less should accept things from those of us with more and vice versa. When we're the person with more, we should feel comfortable. Like these are tiny, tiny moments of trying to create some equity in the world. I don't know. I think young people often get underpaid just because they're young, even though they have amazing skills. Whenever I go out with someone younger, I like to try to pay for the meal, right? Like, yes, we should all be taking care of each other and trying to make the world more equal. But that's not how Ron receives it, and that matters too. No, but this is this is why I think it becomes service when Harry says, don't expect a Christmas present. Totally. Right. 
that's when it becomes like, I care about your feelings. I care about like how this feels to receive this gift. It's not just a service to you that you ought to feel grateful for and not ask any questions. Like he's like, I'm doing this to make you feel good. So if it doesn't make you feel or doing this to be helpful and to like to be kind, if it doesn't make you feel good, then it's not being successful. So what do I need to do to make it feel good? And he says like, you're not getting a Christmas present. Right. Right. And that's great. To me, that's when it becomes service. That's when it becomes like it, it changes from charity to service, from patronizing to let's just enjoy this together. When he says like, yeah, I understand this is landing wrong for you. Don't worry. I'm not taking pity on you. This is we're at the Quidditch World Cup. These are really cool. Let's enjoy these. Right. Yeah. I just want to use this as a soapbox moment to normalize more exchange of money between individuals. It is infuriating when you like watch someone with a million dollars who could pay off your $10,000 in student loans and completely change your life. And the $10,000 wouldn't, I'm like, let's just all free exchange of these things, not only guilt-free, but like as a service, they owe the world because you can't become rich without a little bit of evil. Yep. We should all be trying to make the world more equitable. And part of that is destigmatizing, accepting this money. Yeah. That is not help. It's just an, a, an exchange of money. Yeah. Matt, you have etymology corner. Can I have a moment of fashion corner? Absolutely. So fashion alert, Robert's victim, very good at his job, horrible fashion sense. He's like, there's someone here in a kilt and a poncho. Can you believe it? Um, if a kilt and a poncho is wrong, I don't want to be right. That sounds like an amazing outfit. I'm not making a joke. Why wouldn't you want to wear a kilt and a poncho? Sounds great, especially if you're Scottish and it's raining. Exactly. (laughs) Culturally insensitive. I'm like, there are a million reasons why I would want to wear a kilt and a poncho. Thank you. Culturally and meteorologically insensitive. (laughs) Yes. You know, Vanessa, since we're speaking about fashion, I I think we probably should have mentioned when we were talking about the wizard's kind of attempts to imitate or interpret muggle culture and muggle dress, the scene with the nightgown, where there's confusion over which genders are entitled to wear nightgowns. Yeah. So there are two men having an argument, and one of them is an old wizard who's wearing a long, flowery nightgown. And so I think the problem here is that it's flowery, and flowers are for women. And the other is a ministry wizard, and he's holding out a pair of pinstriped trousers, almost crying with exasperation. Just put them on, Archie. There's a good chap. You can't walk around like that. The muggle at the gate's already getting suspicious. And Archie says, I bought this at a muggle shop. Muggles wear them. And this is the line. Muggle women wear them, Archie, not the men. They wear these. And then it's unclear. Like, it is true that culturally it is more accepted that muggle women wear flowery nightgowns. It shouldn't be. Everyone should be wearing flowery nightgowns than men. And... The other part is that Hermione laughs at the interaction. But part of what Hermione is laughing about in the interaction is this line where Archie says, I like a healthy breeze around my privates, thanks. Which, to be clear, if somebody in public was talking about the breeze around their privates, I would also find that very funny. But this whole scene is gender norms around clothing. And it is interesting that this is the thing that the ministry is regulating. The ministry is not cracking down on the fact that there are two little girls riding around on magical brooms and that there are, you know, people with peacocks on their houses. They're cracking down on the person who's dressing in a non-gender conforming way. 
And I think that that is a really interesting choice in the ministry and interesting that Rowling is pointing this out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good example of like the a good practical example of like how intersectionality works, right? Like, right. Because when you encounter something that you don't understand, you're not familiar with, you tend to project your own frameworks upon it and interpret it through the systems of understanding you already carry with you, which have their own baggage, right? Which have their own issues. And so in encountering muggle culture, wizards are projecting upon it the same sort of gender frameworks that that they just assume are natural, quote unquote natural, and so they can make more sense of that, which they do not understand. Right. Whereas Archie is like, this is closer to a, a robe than anything else. Like this actually is the thing that suits me best. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I, I think the other thing, right, is that this ministry official thinks that he is providing a service. He thinks that he is keeping wizards safe and like maintaining the status quo in a helpful way when really... Again, it's just like, why is this the thing you're focusing on, right? Like all sorts of laws are being broken all over the place. Is this really the standard that you want to uphold? Yeah. So it's now time for our sacred reading practice. And this week, we are once again going to do a sacred imagination together. Vanessa, I have a passage from towards the end of the chapter. It's after the conversation with Bagman and Crouch. And I chose it because it's just kind of like a survey of the camp. So I think we might just get it sink into the setting a little bit. A sense of excitement rose like a palpable cloud over the campsite as the afternoon wore on. By dusk, the still summer air itself seemed to be quivering with anticipation. And as darkness spread like a curtain over the thousands of waiting wizards, the last vestiges of pretense disappeared. The ministry seemed to have bowed to the inevitable and stopped fighting the signs of blatant magic now breaking out everywhere. Salesmen were apparating every few feet, carrying trays and pushing carts full of extraordinary merchandise. There were luminous rosettes, green for Ireland, red for Bulgaria, which were squealing the names of the players. Pointed green hats bedecked with dancing shamrocks, Bulgarian scarves adorned with lions that really roared, flags from both countries that played their national anthems as they were waved. There were tiny models of firebolts that really flew, and collectible figures of famous players, which strolled across the palm of your hand, preening themselves. Been saving my pocket money all summer for this, Ron told Harry as they and Hermione strolled through the salesmen, buying souvenirs. Though Ron purchased a dancing shamrock hat and a large green rosette, he also bought a small figure of Victor Crumb, the Bulgarian seeker. The miniature Crumb walked backward and forward over Ron's hand, scowling up at the green rosette above him. So what did you notice in this passage, Vanessa? Did you take the position of a particular character or were you an observer in the crowd? I was a a participant in the crowd. I was like a kid walking through all of this. And just that overwhelming feeling of like wanting everything and knowing that I can't have everything. And also the joy of that level of sensory overload where your eyes are like trying to take everything in but cannot possibly take everything in. But also that feeling of overwhelm at that sensory overload. 
And so, yeah, it, you know, it's funny because I know this isn't one of the senses, but like I felt it in my chest, that like excitement, that like, oh my God, look at everything. And like where your eyes almost get tired from like trying to feast on everything. Yeah, it was my overwhelming experience. I feel like I was like a little kid, like I was like eight. And so this was very exciting, but also very overwhelming. And you just like can't even, right? Like there's all the nature smells. There's the smell of grass and the smell of the trees and fresh air, but you can't take any of that in because this like commerce has overwhelmed you. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I think I was one of the the children, but I'm not sure which, because I was definitely walking with them, right? But it's hard for me to distinguish like, I was thinking as you were speaking, like, if I really sunk into one of their particular perspectives. But for me, it was really just the noises, right? Like, I think I immediately identified with just when I was a child and going to, like, sporting events with with my dad and uncle and grandpa or something and my brothers, right, or cousins. Like, group trips to big sporting events. I mean, this is the biggest sporting event in the visiting world. So, you know, we were not camping out. This is a bigger event. But just, like, that, the energy, that crowd, like, kind of overstimulation you were talking about. And especially how that arrives upon one, yeah, auditorily, <laughs> like how how like there's that hum of the crowd of people talking and laughing, which is just like the baseline, and then there are all these like new different noises of like the toys and the gadgets like whirring and and people shouting and and hawkers calling out like what they're selling and just how how full that that noise is like how and how how unique how different that is from like other experiences like the noise of a crowd is something that we can might be familiar with but the particular mm-hmm. energy of that kind of crowd plus all the hawkers plus all the the little spinning whirring things mm-hmm. yeah there's just it you just start to kind of reel and get overstimulated which is which is what i was feeling when i was when i was reading it i recently took my younger stepdaughter to a red Sox game for her ninth birthday And the way that Fenway is set up is that the bleachers are right under the, like, big screen and speakers. Mm -hmm. And she did not have fun at this event at all, even though she loves baseball and loves the Red Sox, because it was just too many things, right? Like, there were the concession workers trying to sell us things. There was the crowd having a million responses. There was the baseball game. And then there was this just like really, really loud speaker behind us. And she, at one point, the Red Sox hit a lot of home runs that game. And she looked at me and she went, I do not want them to hit any more home runs because of like the sirens that blared every time they did. And how that level of overwhelm can just like literally be too much. And I think she thought going to a baseball game would mean watching a baseball (laughs) game. And that was like not her experience. She was not watching a baseball game. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, if we ever go back, like we are going to sit on the opposite side and like try to sit somewhere as quiet as possible the first red sox game i took the boys to we sat underneath the speaker and we had to move like yeah sam thought he was gonna throw up because he was so overstimulated yeah like that can be so overwhelming and you can have physiological reactions to it right you do have physiological reactions it's a physiological response yeah the other thing that I that I really sensed was like this sense of anticipation and dread because mm-hmm. it's growing dark and there's crowds everywhere and they're feeling overwhelmed. And I was sensing all this overstimulation from the noise and everyone's happy and everything. Right. But I could not help but just project in my mind the dark mark 
mm-hmm. like rising over these camps in just a couple of chapters, right? And there's something about that, like it. I don't know. I just had this weird sense of lack of security walking through the crowd, and I couldn't tell if it's because I'm anticipating what's going to happen, or maybe you're right. Maybe it's just that, like remembering being a little kid and grabbing my dad's hand through a crowd at a baseball game or or whatever. Like feeling like this is new and different, and there are a lot of people here. And if I let go this hand, I might never be found. Right? Like there's that there's that feeling too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if magic gives a sense of security, and then what turns out to be a false sense of security that like yeah, your parent can always operate at you or go Akio Matt, and like you would just be yeah, dragged right. to your parent or whatever yeah. that device is where you can like find your lost kid within fifty meters. That I hope that the magical world has, but the dark mark is still going to come and scare everybody. Yep. Well, Matt, thank you so much for leading us on this sacred imagination. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now we have a voice memo from Grace. Hi, Sacred Text team. My name is Grace, and this is a blessing for Ali Bashir, who's a character we never actually meet, but we do hear about. In the seventh chapter of Goblet of Fire, Mr. Crouch tells Mr. Weasley that Ali Bashir would like a word with Mr. Weasley about his embargo on flying carpets, to which Mr. Weasley responds, if I've told him once, I've told him a hundred times, carpets are defined as a muggle artifact by the Registry of Prescribed Charmable Objects. They're having this discussion, of course, at the Quidditch World Cup, which is only possible because of uh, the broomstick industry 
and Mr. Weasley has charmed a car to fly. His sons have also done that with said car twice. And to me, there's something particularly sinister, or at least nasty, about a white English wizard at the ministry embargoing an Arab-Egyptian, presumably Muslim man's flying carpet industry. Not to mention the uh, stereotyping involved in casting an Arab, presumably Muslim wizard as someone who has a flying carpet industry in the first place. Having said all that, my blessing is for Ali Bashir and the hope that he and others who are unfairly brick-walled by hypocrisy and um, prejudice excel beyond their wildest dreams because clearly British wizards don't know what they're missing. Assalamu alaikum. Grace, thank you so much for this this really beautiful voicemail. I love you pointing out the hypocrisy of a flying magic carpet. Who would ever, while well, there is a flying car that is being used by the Weasleys on the regular, or at least being built on the regular and being used, you know, without the consent of the parents, but still it is like sitting there in that garage. And I think it's really complicated, right? I I do appreciate that Bagman acknowledges like this is a new law. And I understand the feeling of like, hey, you flipped this law 20 years ago, flip it back. You know, magic carpets are awesome. This feels culturally biased. And it's how I made my living. And so I'm just really grateful for you calling our attention to this. Yeah, that was a great catch. Grace, thank you for pointing that out to us. I, you know, I, I should have, and we probably should have talked about it in our theme discussion. But that's a really important point again of like cultural misunderstanding—the exact thing that we were talking about before. Like, there's nothing more or less muggle about a carpet than a broom. The brooms are considered magical, but carpets are not, right? And it makes me wonder, like, in you know, uh, among different wizarding communities in the world, is there like a really cool carpet-based sport? There should be. Right. That just did not get like global fame the way that European sports have gotten global fame. Like it makes me interested and just curious about like how deep and rich wizarding culture might be across these different cultural borders. So thank you for your voicemail and thanks for for noting this to us and to our listeners. That is such a good point, Matt. And so interesting to think about like the history of brooms as magical objects versus muggle artifacts, because that's what Arthur says. Arthur is like, ah, rugs are clearly muggle artifacts. What is a broom? I use a broom every day. That's right. That is a muggle artifact. (sighs) Thank you so much, Grace. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Mary Tabata, who is 95, a matriarch and a lucky card player. Barbara, a mother, a loving grandmother, a big sister, and a sailor. Ray Bowman, who is 78, a father, grandfather, and cheeky until the end. Cal Cook, who is 90 a painter, a lover of the desert, and a grandfather. And Cristiano Tzoti, who is 94, and a lover of opera and everyone's no-no. 
May their memories be a blessing. Matt, it's now time for us to bless a character. Who would you like to bless today? I'd like to bless Roberts, who is the muggle who is repeatedly obliviated in this chapter. I already talked about why I think that's awful, and that's partly why I'm blessing him, because that's awful. But I want to bless him for this specific like moment at the end of the Quidditch World Cup. We know the Quidditch World Cup is going to end in chaos, and everyone's going to like flee their tents, which means that Roberts is going to wake up in a couple of days not having remembered anything with this giant mess on his campsite, <laughs> right? And he'd be yeah. completely confused, like that moment, like when you walk into a mess that you did not cause, but it is now your responsibility to clean up. That's a terrible moment. It's the, the cherry on top of lots of terrible moments for Roberts this weekend. And so he has my blessing. Who are you blessing, Vanessa? I'm blessing Ginny for this moment. She says, I thought Mr. Bagman was head of magical games and sports. He should know better than to talk about bludgers near muggles, shouldn't he? And I just want to bless this child who is really trying to respect muggles. I feel like she's like, hey, we have a responsibility here. We have crossed cultural lines. It is our job to know how to say please and thank you and ask where the bathroom is and like have basic decency in this other culture and respect this other culture. And Ginny is the person in this chapter who we hear articulate that desire to be respectful. And I love that Ginny is questioning the behavior of adults. She's 13 and she's like, hey, aren't you doing this wrong? That is awesome. Next week, we'll be reading chapter eight, the Quidditch World Cup through the theme of nostalgia with our special guest and regular co-host Jackson Bird. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. Please join us at summer camp next summer and also join us at our Harry Potter and the Sacred Text live show on the 24th of October in Somerville, Massachusetts. And then we are going to be in Denver, Colorado for a live show on November 18th. You can buy tickets to both of those events at harrypottersacredtext.com. And of course, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get ad-free episodes of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We are very grateful for your support. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Boll. And we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Grace for their voice memo, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Takail, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of those whom they have loved and lost this week. Did my voice go up too much just now? Was it like, and I'm Matt Potts? Was that all right? I didn't notice that one up at all. You can choose from those two, AJ. No, from those three. (laughs) I liked the middle one best. The impression of the high pitch one was the good one. That's right. I'm Matt Potts. I'm Matt Potts. Potts. (laughs) Am I Matt Potts? (laughs)